You guys know how much I love nursing schools. Well, we have another one that wants us to tell you about their MSN and DNP family nurse practitioner programs. Samuel Merritt University has been educating nurses for over 100 years. And right now, they are offering tons of scholarship opportunities starting at $10,000 for both of these programs. You know, I'm in the midst of getting my MSN. And let me tell you, I wish I would have known about these scholarships when I first enrolled. Visit them at smumsn.com and show them how much you appreciate them for sponsoring our podcast. That's smumsn.com. I also wanted to remind you that if you're interested in travel nursing, to go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there and you can also see what they pay the stipend the hourly rate all of that i'm a travel nurse now with trusted health and i absolutely love working for them so go to trustedhealth.com be sure and put forward slash good nurse so that they'll know that we sent you there and fill out a profile today This is different for me. It's the first time I've done this. I've spoken in front of people before, but not actually recorded an episode of the podcast. Jer has, I call her Jer, I'm sorry. <laughs> I know that's different, but she's uh, recorded episodes with me, two, three, I think. And so we're used to doing this. I've recorded over 150 episodes, and but doing it in front of people, totally new experience. So I was going to just talk to you for just a moment about new experiences, because I know most of you are about to embark on some very new experiences. (laughs) And I know it's scary because I did it myself. We've all been there. So as a preceptor, I, whenever I have a new orientee, a new grad, as chair is, I always tell them right up front, I say, you know, as a new nurse, you're going to be doing so many new things all the time constantly you're going to be faced with learning something brand spanking new you're going to be every time you turn around never done this before every time you turn around i don't remember i I know they taught us this in nursing school but i'm just just i'm drawing a blank and you're not only are you learning new things but you're having to do that in front of your preceptor in front of doctors in front of your patient in front of family members for crying out loud and it's it's nerve-wracking yeah because you have what? I mean, anxiety. You have adrenaline coursing through your veins. And so that adrenaline causes your body to go into fight or flight mode. Well, what do you do when you go into fight or flight mode? Your body is like, we don't need the brain right now. We need muscles. We need to fight or run. So we need muscles. So we don't have any resources for our brain. Your brain just forgets everything. And you're standing there like, I don't know what two plus two is. I have no idea. And you say dumb things in front of your preceptor and you say dumb things in front of the the patient and you walk out and you go, oh my gosh, I knew the answer to that. Why did I, I know better than that. What did I just say? (laughs) (laughs) So I just wanted to talk to you about that because I know you're getting ready to go through that experience. So I wanted this opportunity to say to you what I always say to the new grads that I orient and that is please be kind to yourself. Please forgive yourself. Please go home. You're gonna cry. (laughs) You just are, but that's okay. Learn from it, reflect on it as we learn to do, and then you can change. You know that in the future you won't make that mistake again. But it's okay. 
It's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to forget something that you really think you should have known. Everybody's done it. And I also want you to remember that in six months to a year or whenever, when you're that person who now is a little more confident and you have the new grad in front of you, please be kind to that person. If they don't know what two plus two is, it's okay. You are going to take them by the hand and go, I didn't know what two plus two is either. It's fine. We've all been there. Make them feel better about that. Like, be supportive of each other. We need to be supportive of each other, especially during the times that we're in right now. Yes. Right? And please be kind to me because I have the adrenaline running through. Like I said, this is a new experience. And so I'm not sure what's going to happen, but we're going to get through this and and it's going to be good. And so we were just all learning experience, but thank you guys so much for allowing me to do this. Ever since Nurse Blake asked me to do a live show on nurse Con, on the NurseCon cruise next spring, I have just it been thinking, I have to figure out a way to do this before that, so <laughs> obviously. So thank you for the, giving me this opportunity. Absolutely. Really appreciate it. Yeah. So I guess we can get started. Get started. Yeah. So our first story, of course, you, I don't know how many people listen to the podcast, but we always do the bad nurse story first. We start out with that because we like to end on a good note and uh, talk about the good things last, right, dear? Right. <laughs> so this is the story of Dr. William Husel, and he is a doctor from Ohio. And the reason that I chose this story to do is I, I I want you to learn some things from it. It's going to help you um, as a new grad and as a nurse working on the floor. It's really going to help you to learn, hopefully, some lessons that some other nurses maybe didn't learn or had to learn the hard way. So Dr. William, he's a medical doctor working as an intensivist at Mount Carmel Hospital in Ohio. Dr. Husa was arrested and charged with 25 counts of murder in December of 2019. Now, we're going to focus on the nurses' role in the events that happened and the implication for all the nurses everywhere due to the events that happened there, you know, what happened subsequently. So most of you, of course, are nursing students, obviously, so you may not be familiar with the appropriate dosages of IV fentanyl. So just to give you an idea, the common fentanyl dosages that are pushed through an IV for non-ventilated patients are 50 mics, 100, 150, 200 max. And the max I've seen was like 100, mainly like 50, maybe 60, but 100 was the max. Yeah, so if a patient is spontaneously breathing, no ventilator, you are definitely not gonna go over 200. And it just seems crazy to even say that out loud, but just wait till we get into the story. So just kind of tuck those numbers into the back of your mind for a moment, and we'll tell you a little bit about Dr. Husel. He applied to work at Mount Carmel in June of 2013 and was granted the credentials to work as a night shift critical care intensivist. And there was a story done, a CBS affiliate that did a series on this story called Deadly Dosage. And the reporter made a big issue about the fact that he only met two of the four requirements. And it's interesting because the requirements was that they be a medical doctor or a DO, 
have a residency in internal medicine, a fellowship in critical care, and be eligible to take the board exam in internal medicine. The thing that, that they made a big deal about is the fact that his residency was in anesthesiology. And so I know that all of you are going, well, you would think that would be a good thing. Yeah. You would, yeah, you would definitely want the anesthesiologist there as the intensivist, and actually a lot of times they are. That's who is doing it. So the thing is, people doing these, re the reporters that are telling these stories to the public are not medical most of the time. And so they're saying things, and the general public is going, he said, what? That's terrible. This hospital is unsafe. And the hospital is going, we really followed our, guide our guidelines. We hired someone better than what we said, you know, was necessary. So kind of keep that in your mind, back of your mind too, because we're also going to be talking a little bit, we're going to pull in a few references to a case that happened just down the road here, Redonda Vaught. I don't know if you guys are familiar with her. She's a nurse from Vanderbilt who made a medication error and it's just wrecked her life basically. So there are some similarities in this story to some of the things that happened to, to Redonda. And so I just wanted to bring that up because uh, I want to point out some of those things. And one of those things is the fact that the, whenever the news media is reporting on it, you just roll your eyes like, that's not all that happened, but fine. You know, it's just, it can be frustrating. And then you stop and think about the fact that the prosecutor and the police department and the 12 jurors that are going to be on on the jury are not medical and so it can be frustrating when you really think about the implications for that because we sometimes we i mean we know what we're doing yes. and we can understand how a mistake can be made but they may not be able to so in october of 2018 after he had been working there for five years a formal report was filed by an employee at the hospital that questioned his patient care, citing multiple deaths due to inappropriately large doses of fentanyl being prescribed and administered. The report didn't seem to really have an immediate effect because he was allowed to continue to treat patients using those same methods for another three weeks, and three more patients died. So that's, that'll be significant. We'll kind of talk about that in a little bit. On December 4th, 2018, a memo was sent to staff claiming a number of employees were not providing care in line with the hospital standards. And then on the 5th, Dr. Husel was fired. This is in 2018. So Ed Lamb is the president, was the president and CEO of Mount Carmel, and he released two different videos, one to the public and one to the hospital. I feel like that's how it always goes, isn't it? So it's like they tell the public, you know, one thing and then to, you know, internally, although it, it almost seems like internally you would be slapping people's hands and going, you guys know better than this. And then to the public, like, uh, we tried, you know, but it almost was the opposite because when he was talking to the general public, it, it was kind of like our employees were bad, you know, like they didn't follow our protocols and threw them all under the bus. And then when he was talking to his employees, it was like, Dr. Husel was bad and, you know, he did something bad. It was just so inconsistent. So the hospital came under scrutiny because of the delay in removing Dr. Husel from patient care after the initial report. And in a later interview, the CEO claimed that there was no possible way for the hospital to have removed Dr. Husel at any or any earlier than they did when they did when they started their investigation. So all of this happened, of course, October to now we're getting into December. And this is all 
you know, this started a firestorm, whoever sent this initial report. By January, the hospital reached out to the family of the patients and they said, we're going to be going public with this. I mean, I know they had no choice. They knew they were going to have to go public with it. And so they approached the family and they're like, we're going public with this. From this point, there were something like 28 lawsuits that were filed by family members for wrongful death, negligence, and other types of allegations. Attorneys representing the family members claimed that either the systems of the hospital failed to alert the medical professionals or the system did flag them and it was just intentionally ignored in order to hasten the patient's deaths. Before January would end, the prosecutor's office and the police department would begin investigating these cases for possible criminal involvement. And Dr. Husel would attend an investigative conference with representatives of the state medical board and he asserted his constitutional right against self-incrimination and whenever he was asked about the dosages and they asked about the toxic effect of fentanyl mixed with benzodiazepine. So Versed, he would order also excessive dosages of Versed along with the fentanyl. And so the medical board's asking them about that and he's like, I take the fifth. I'm not going to, I can't incriminate myself. So he wouldn't answer the questions. We'll take a moment to hear a word from our sponsor. You guys, a career in nursing is more than just a job. It's a lifelong journey of learning and growing. And professional development is key for any nurse hoping to advance their career. So how about you? Are you ready to take your career to the next level? If so, now is the time for you to get your certification in nursing. Earning your certification is a major professional milestone. It's a seal of approval recognized by professional peers, hiring managers, and patients. It signifies your commitment to excellence, your level of competence, and can make you more marketable in a competitive field, offering 18 different certifications, including 12 specialty certifications. Whether you're looking to earn your first certification, ready to renew, or exploring new certifications, they are there to make the entire process as easy, affordable, flexible, and painless as possible. Whatever your practice level or desired specialty, they can help you prepare your exam with a range of affordable tools and resources designed to set you up for success. And their commitment to you goes well beyond the exam. They provide all the ongoing support, advocacy, guidance, and resources that you need throughout your nursing career. This is your career, and you deserve the best. At ANCC, they're going to be there to help you every step of the way. So visit pages.nursingworld.org forward slash GNBN to learn more. That's pages.nursingworld.org forward slash GNBN. And we'll put that link on our website. If you want to just go to Good Nurse, Bad Nurse, you can click on it from there. Welcome, Leah. I just wanted to chat with you a little bit about your experience with CBD stat. Which product do you actually use? So there's four products, the roll-on, the cream, the salve, and the oil. The two that I use every day are the cream and the oil. What is your biggest benefit? How does it help you? The cream I put on every day after work. I'll shower and then I'll put it on my feet just to help my arches. No more shin splints, just my feet feel more comfortable. And the cream has been a lifesaver there. And then I use the oil to help me sleep. So I just switched jobs. I had been working nights for the last eight years. So the oil was huge on helping me come home and actually get quality of sleep throughout the day. And I wake up feeling well-rested and not groggy like some other medications have made me feel in the past. I didn't realize that about the feet. 
and I have plantar fasciitis. So now I literally cannot wait to get off here and go try that. And then just the sleep benefit, that one is definitely well known. I hear that a lot in the feedback that I've gotten. As you guys know, their products are 100% THC free. CBD Stat has a team of engineers that invented a very unique and efficient process to produce CBD isolate, which is the purest form of CBD. They only offer very strong products, greater than a thousand milligrams. If you guys are interested in CBD stat in their product, you can go to cbdstat.care forward slash good nurse, bad nurse. Be sure and put the forward slash good nurse, bad nurse in there so they know that we sent you there. cbdstat.care. Be sure and put dot care instead of dot com forward slash good nurse, bad nurse. The Department of Medicaid suspended their agreement, said, you know, you can't treat our patients. And then the State Medical Board of Ohio voted to suspend his license. All of this happened in January. Then CMS came along, and this is another similarity to the Redonda Vought case. Because they came along, they sent a letter to the hospital saying Medicare participation could be terminated, could be terminated due to pharmaceutical services deficiencies that were, quote, so serious they constitute an immediate threat to patient health and safety. What happened is Mount Carmel then put all these measurements into, or um, implemented all these different, like, a, like protocols, made changes, fired people, and they're like, we fixed these things. And so then CMS was like, okay, we'll keep giving you money. That's exactly what happened to Redonda Vaught. They, this, she made a medication error. They treated it as such. Months went by. Someone made an anonymous, you know, gave an anonymous tip. And then CMS came and did an investigation, filled out a full report, said, hey, Vanderbilt, we are going to pull your funding because this is unsafe. What happened here? So basically that's, you know, saying that this happened because there were unsafe practices. And so Vanderbilt put in lots of different changes and then CMS said, okay, now we'll keep paying you. But Redonda, unfortunately, was thrown way up under the, the bus. She was fired. She you know, came under scrutiny by the State Board of Nursing again. And then, you know, what's happened? It's just been an, uh, an awful ordeal for her that is still ongoing, and her trial is next uh, I believe February. Yeah, in that situation, it was pretty sad to me, like coming from a nursing point of view, just because anybody could have made that mistake, you know? And I feel like it was blamed, like, just on her, and it was basically a system failure, in my opinion. It wasn't just this individual person, it's like the entire system failed it, and she was targeted, like, oh, it was just Redonda Vaught and not the entire, like, hospital mm -hmm. problem, so. Yeah, exactly, and that's what bothers me a lot. I think that there's a lot of different opinions out there. People are very opinionated about that case, and, and there are a lot of nurses that say, oh, she should have lost her license. She That was terrible. I would have never made that mistake. Yeah, don't ever say that because you really don't know what's what you're capable of doing until you, you know, when you get thrown into a, a, an unsafe situation. The thing is, even if you think she should have lost her license and could never work at the bedside again, should she have been charged with homicide, you know, criminally negligent homicide and, and elder abuse and be on an elder abuse register for the rest of her life? I just can't imagine a scenario in which that's reasonable. 
That's just a personal opinion. This really reminds me of that because when CMS gets involved, the hospital changes their colors. It's like, we got your back, you know, and then it's like, no, well, we have to have that money from CMS or we will not be able to, well, they can't function. I mean, they have to have it. So who are they going to throw under the bus? I don't know. We'll, it, so far, this is a couple of different, this is not common. This is not something that, that is very common to have someone charged like this criminally. It's, it's kind of crazy. But wait until we get into more of the story because where this is very, uh, where Redonda's was a medication error, this, this is very different. This is definitely different as far as intentions go. So the hospital said, you know, they were doing their own investigation and Trinity, which is the big company that owns like all these different hospitals, were doing their own investigation. They said they identified 35 patients who had received, ex received excessive doses of fentanyl and 29 potentially fatal. It also said that there, five of the patients had opportunities for treatment that may have improved their conditions. That is a whole different story right there because most of the people in this whole story over the five years, most of these patients were in situations where they were on a ventilator. They were not going to get better. They had terminal cancer, advanced stages. They had, you know, maybe had a heart attack and had an anoxic brain injury and they were not going to come back from that. They had whatever the situation was, multi-system organ failure. They were not going to get better. And everyone knew it. And family even accepted it. Everyone was aware. Dr. Husa would talk to the family and say, what, what do you want to do? Your family member is on this ventilator. The machine is keeping them alive at this point. And the family would say, that's not what they would want. Yes, just take them off and please keep them comfortable, okay? And this is a conversation that you as a, a nurse, if you decide to work in acute care, are probably going to have to be involved with, but this is something that, it was a shock to me when I started working at the bedside to experience this, honestly, I remember experiencing this the first time and then being a patient being placed on comfort care and then being given an, an order to give a patient uh, morphine that was in respiratory distress. And I'm just like, no, I, I don't, I'm not gonna kill them. I thought I was gonna, you know, like kill them. I experienced that in long-term care and I was like, so yeah, it can be a little scary. And the thing is you, you learn that you're not speeding up. You're not hastening their death at all. In fact, what I've experienced over the years is that a lot of times it, it relaxes their airway. It get, it allows them to breathe more comfortably. They go, yeah, it's a, it will depress your, your respiratory rate, but they're breathing 35, 36 times a minute. And they're in distress, so when you give them the morphine, it sort of relaxes their airway. Now they're breathing like 18 to 20 times a minute, and they're relaxed, and a lot of times alert. And I'm, I still am just amazed by this process and how it happens. And they're comfortable, and you, you can give them that. Every couple of hours, you can give them four milligrams of morphine. You can give them a milligram or two of Ativan. And of course, all this depends on their weight and whether they're opioid naive or whatever their circumstances are. But you're not hastening their death by any means. And this is a learning process. I didn't understand this. I learned this. Well, what if I get five years into, I'm, I've only been a nurse six years. I get six years and, and I find out everyone thinks I've been, you know, and all the people alongside of me is, that are administering this, that you're hastening their death. No, I was, I was told this is helping them to be comfortable. The, you know, the judgment is real and you, it, you are now being called under the carpet. 
so that's sort of what's about to happen here to these nurses, and it's 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 it can be scary. But I want to scare you to death. I, we're, we definitely we want to learn from this, and I think we can. I think we can definitely learn from this and and learn how to to do this in a safe way. As I said, most of these patients had been placed on comfort care before being taken off the ventilator. However, with what was happening is the doctor was having this conversation and then telling the nurse, okay, extubate the patient and then administer this fentanyl. So before I started working in the ICU, I did not realize that, or I, I, would, I just had no experience with it, but that you, know, you pretty much don't use fentanyl very often unless they are intubated. Uh, so to be told, so you have a, pa- a patient that you know typically would be on a fentanyl drip around, I don't know, 50, 100, 150, 200. You're just like, good grief, that person's on 200 fentanyl. And then you, you're told extubate them and then push 400 mics of fentanyl, 500 mics of fentanyl, 800, 1,000. How about 2,000 mics of fentanyl? So uh, when I was reading the story, I, wrote, I'm, I want to advoc- advocate for nurses. I want to advocate for doctors, all of our, our healthcare colleagues. And so when I first came across the story, I was immediately like on his side. As the doctor, I was like, of course, he was, this is comfort care. This is not fair. How can you call him in a question? And then I wasn't, I didn't work in intensive care at the time. I didn't really you know, pay too close attention to that. I was just thinking, this is comfort care. How could you do this? After working on, on CBICU at UT Medical Center for a year and a half, it is really hard for me to say those numbers and not, you know, just gag a little bit. Like, yes, it's very uncomfortable. It's so hard to understand, you know, how that happened. So the thing is, though, this could happen to many different types of professions. You know, think about a mechanic who told to do something to a car. Like, say, his you know, a mechanic's boss says, "Hey, here, look, you, I don't know anything about fixing cars, but here, fix this car in this way." And the mechanic is thinking, "I don't think that's safe. That doesn't sound right." And then the guy's like, "No, this is. I'm the expert. You use a doer. You just do it." And so they're like, okay, and you fix it, and there's a horrible accident, and someone dies because of it. Could they be called on the carpet for that? Charged with murder, with homicide? I mean, who's responsible? The person that told them to do it, the person that did it. Especially if you can prove that they knew better, or they should have known better. And that's the thing that happens with us as nurses. Whenever you are, if you're charged with something like this and you have to go to court, they will have an expert, an expert nurse. They'll have somebody up there with a DNP, with a PhD, the expert that knows the book frontwards and backwards, and they will say, yes, that nurse should have known better. And so then the jury's sitting there going, well, that nurse right there said she should have known better. So kind of keeping all that stuff there um, uh, in the back of your mind when you're thinking about all these things and as we go through some more of these details. So he is charged with 25 counts of murder. He turned himself into the police. This was in June of 2019. Prosecutors focused on the cases where the patients had been given 500 mics of fentanyl or more. I feel like they probably talked with doctors and nurses maybe and and said, 
is this at all reasonable? And, and if I know that if, if they asked me, I would be like, well, why don't you take the maximum dosage to give somebody, double it and add 100? <laughs> and then I would say, start there. And it, you know, if, if they gave it uh, you know, anything above 100, I definitely think that's where you need to be focusing on. Each count carries a mandatory sentence of 15 years to life if he's convicted. His, um, so an additional 23 nurses uh, and pharmacists were also fired in, a, in connection with the, with the deaths. The CEO stepped down. Three pharmacists faced fines. Ten of the fired employees sued Mount Carmel because, for wrongful termination because they felt like it was unjust. They felt like the, pan the executives just panicked and, and fired them, you know, again, just kind of throwing them under the bus. Dr. Husel sued his parent company, Trinity Health, because they didn't cover his legal fees. They argued that they didn't have to because he wasn't acting in, within the scope of his employment and that, quote, murder cannot be insured. So he also filed a defamation lawsuit. I feel like this is the back and forth, you know, against Trinity Health and Ed Lamb because, of course, they're going out saying all these things publicly against him, turning the public against him. The state medical board revoked his license, and a trial date was set for June the 1st of 2020. I wonder why it didn't happen. So I said I wasn't going to say the word. The whole, I was going to try really hard not to say it. <laughs> yeah, so of course it didn't happen because of COVID. I've said that so many times in the past year. But it is going to happen in February of 2022, which is really weird because guess what else that coincides? Whose trial that coincides with? So strange. Bizarre. Do you guys remember Casey Anthony and Aaron Hernandez? Okay. Jose Baez is like this big time attorney that represented those two people. And he's going to be representing Dr. Husel. This is going to get a crap ton of press, national media. It's, it's really going to uh, bring, a, well, in a time where we really need positive press for the healthcare community and we really need to be lifted up, it's going to be some serious negative press for us in whenever this all starts next year. It's not going to be good. But he, he pled not guilty to all charges and has continued to, to um, hold to that this whole time. And this, you know, this case obviously brings up a lot of questions about comfort care and euthanasia. In some states, euthanasia is, is legal. If you have a terminal illness, you know, it's, it's, it's not real common. But the state of Ohio, it is absolutely not legal. But comfort care is different. Comfort care is you know, you, you have a, you do have something, you know, term, you are very close to the end. You are about to die and you don't want to sit there and gasp for air and be miserable and scared. And so it is, it's saying we're going to stop all this, all the measures. We're not going to, we're certainly not going to have you on a ventilator. We're not going to have you on pressers trying to keep your blood pressure up. We're not going to be doing all these things to to you, right? We're just going to try to help you to be comfortable so that you can naturally pass in a peaceful way on your terms. And it's you doing it. It's not us doing it, right? But it scares me to think that that, that compassionate nursing and medical care that we give to people in a very natural time, I mean, death is part of life. It just is. 
And so to help people with that process, to me, is, is a compassionate thing to do. So it scares me a little bit to think that all of that's going to start coming into question and medical doctors are going to be, and, and nurse practitioners are going to be afraid. Are they going to be afraid to order medications for these patients? Because one thing that I did hear a lot, or I hear a lot maybe from time to time when I work at the bedside is, you know, nurses will, will just, just be like, oh, I, I'm, I'm afraid to give this medicine or you know, I don't want to, a lot of new nurses will say that, you know, and then I will hear someone else say, well, this is a comfort care patient. You, they're comfort care. There's not going to be an investigation. Please don't think that. Please don't think that. You shouldn't think that way anyway. Yes, it's a comfort care patient, but you, they're a patient and you are treating them, but you're treating them with compassion and you're treating them to try to help them be comfortable. It's different, you know, and, and I think it's, there's a mindset. Somewhere along the way, this doctor got way off on the mindset, got way off on what the goal was for comfort care, it seems like. I, I, I don't want to, I want to be careful about giving my opinion too strongly on this because the trial hasn't taken place. And in his mind, he doesn't think he went overboard. So, and then and the nurses, apparently, so in August of 2020, there was a news article that was released that detailed some depositions, like information from de- depositions that were later sealed by the court, but they, ca- it, they were able to get to it before it was sealed. And so, the pharmacists, like there was like 50 people, pharmacists and nurses that were implicated in this. And so they, all these depositions that took place, this news company got a hold of it and they released details about it. And the pharmacists and nurses said that they did ask questions. They did question it. They said, we asked and we were told this is normal. We were reassured by him that the doses were appropriate and that would, they would, you know, would prevent patients from feeling pain in their final moments of life. Dr. Hussle's wife, Mariah Baird, was among those that were deposed because she was a nurse that he met there in the ICU while this was going on and care for some of those patients. So she had to testify as well in these depositions. And when they asked her if she had any concerns about the 800 micrograms of fentanyl that was given to one of the patients, you know, if she felt like that would have hastened the patient's death, she said the 800 micrograms was an appropriate dose of medication for my patient. So while we're sitting here going, really? you know, like it, we're calling it into question, you know, imagine yourself as a, a new grad working in an ICU in this culture, in the, think about the culture in this hospital in this intensive care unit that this, Cleveland Clinic trained intensivist doctor is working, you know, and, and expert in anesthesia. So your question at your gut goes, whoa, a, a thousand? What? Really? And then the doctor goes, no, it's appropriate. It's exact. It's, it's comfort care. This is right. Yeah, because it can be a little intimidating, like questioning the doctor's order. I feel like in nursing school, we hear like that little stigma, like, you know, doctors over nurses versus like us being a team and it can make us a little intimidated to question anything like anything with the pharmacist because we see them as like the experts we know like they know everything so it's like or we think that they know everything so we're like okay you know we know that two plus two is four but the doctor said two plus two is five so two plus two is five 
So it's, you know, it's a little intimidating when it comes to questioning. It is. It can be intimidating. And I think that it's really important for us to recognize ourselves as professionals. And we have a responsibility. We have a huge responsibility placed on our shoulders. We should be using the education and the skills that we have and questioning these things. And sometimes doctors push back on that. And they'll, you know, they, they, they think it's not your place. To question, I think a lot of times doctors don't even understand what we learn. They have no idea. I, I mentioned the Krebs cycle to a doctor one day, and they acted like, how do you know what the Krebs cycle is? And I just wanted to be like, oh, for crying out loud. <laughs> yeah, I, we learn about that stuff. Do I remember the Krebs cycle? No. I just remembered the word. That's it. But still, <laughs> I remembered it long enough to take a test over it, right? <laughs> so the thing is, though, it whether or not you're treated that way, whether you're intimidated, it is, you have to be strong. You got to thicken up your skin because you're literally, for one thing, your license is on the line. But you, I mean, in some of these cases, I wonder if whenever all, all this is said and done, if he's convicted and actually serves time, what is going to happen? Do you think that the prosecutor and the police are not looking at those nurses and pharmacists and thinking, could we prosecute them too? Yeah, I would say they probably are. And it scares me. Do I think they should be? No, I don't. I, I really don't. I don't think they should be charged criminally. I really don't. But I don't trust that the system is not going to do that to them. So I think that we have to be you know, super careful and stand up for ourselves and you know, be willing to make those hard decisions. It's not easy doing that. It's not easy standing up, especially when everybody around you is doing it. You're, the other nurses are doing it. So you have to be that nurse. It's pretty scary. I've been a nurse for what's <laughs> like six weeks now. <laughs> and um, one of the orders the physician gave me was to titrate a non-rebreather mask. And I'm like, don't titrate that. Like, it's all or nothing. And I could have just titrated it down like he wanted me to or questioned that order. And from their point of view, they were like, well, you know, we do this, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, that's when I really have to put on my big girl panties. I'm like, no, it's really all or nothing. And then they were like, okay, you know what? Let's do 15 and 15. Let's keep it like that. And I'm like, imagine if I just listened to that order, like titrate the number breather. Like my patient could have bottomed out. They were already a COVID patient. Like it's just one of those things that we know not to do. But, you know, and I feel like they have so many patients that they're taking care of at once. Sometimes they don't even know what they're saying. So we really have to be the eyes and ears of our patient. Um, there's nothing like you can never go wrong with asking a question. I always like utilize my resources when it comes to like medications. I did give a bolus of, I want to say 4,000 units of heparin. I've never seen it that high, so I was like, okay. I got a little scared. I was like, okay. I don't want to seem like incompetent because this is one of my last shifts with preceptor and I want her to know that I'm a bad nurse. Like I can do this by myself. And so I was like, uh, okay, question it, Jay, or just hang it. Question it, hang it, which one? So I just was like, okay, Jay, we're gonna go question it. And luckily I went to my preceptor and she was like, yeah, that does seem like a lot. You know what, let's call pharmacy and get that verified. 
luckily it was verified for that patient through the doctor's orders. It was verified through the pharmacy. It was verified. But just know that you can never go wrong with questioning anything. Always question something that doesn't seem right because sometimes, like, especially in July, you have, like, these new nurse residents and they don't really know. They know just as much as we do. So if you take anything from this, always question orders and don't be afraid to be an advocate for your patient because it can kill them. What I like to say, kill them dead. It could kill them dead, you know. We're solely responsible for that, no matter what. We can say, oh, the doctor told us to do this, but at the end of the day, it's our responsibility to take care of them. Yeah, and don't be afraid to ask, quote, dumb questions, because if there's somebody that's kind of, they're they're going to be bullying people. There just are. There's people that are going to talk about, about you behind your back because you asked a question that they feel like you should have known the answer to. It's, it's fine. You may, someone might have shown you how to set something up or how to do something, you know, whatever it is, five times. And then the sixth time you go to do it and you, you question yourself, like, oh, they showed me this five times. No, I don't want to ask again. If you can't look it up on YouTube and watch it, <laughs> go ask the sixth time. It's fine. Like, just go ask. It's, if that person is any any sort of a good nurse at all, they are not going to care. And they're going to be like, yes, good job, way to go, answer, or ask for help every single time. There's no such thing as a dumb question. And show you for the sixth time. You know, whatever you have to do, don't worry about it. If they're bullying, they're bullying. Don't let them bother you. They're not worth your, they're not worth any anxiety. They're really not. If they're like that, they're not a good nurse. They're just not. So hopefully, you know, they can overcome that. They'll learn better because that's not good. So that pretty much does it for our bad doctor story. I know. <laughs> well, and I, like I said, the trial is next spring. So we, we in this country are, are innocent until proven guilty. There's a lot of information out there about this case, but there's probably a lot more information out there that will come out during the trial, and hopefully the jurors that are chosen will, you know, can be unbiased and can just like clear their head of all of that noise and make a, you know, a nice neutral decision about what they think. We'll take a moment to hear a word from our sponsor. Did you know that you don't have to go all across the country to be a travel nurse? You certainly can, but you don't have to. I literally took an assignment that's an hour and a half away from my house, and I love it. I can stay in a hotel room if I want, or I can drive back home. So it's the best of both worlds for me. For my next assignment, we're going to get a cabin in the mountains that's about two hours from our house, so it'll really be like a little getaway. Also, one of my really good friends is going with me so we can share expenses. You guys, even if you're just a little curious about travel nursing, go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there and what they pay. Go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile. So I have to tell you guys about an experience I had with a nursing student. So you know I've been doing travel nursing. Well, this hospital where I'm at has a lot of LPN students doing their clinicals there. So one of them was following me around one day and she noticed my stethoscope. And of course, y'all know the Echo Technology Company that sponsors our podcast. They teamed up with Littman to make the stethoscopes, to beat all stethoscopes, the 3M Littman Core Digital Stethoscope. And this is the one that I use now. So she said, oh my gosh, I've been wanting to try one of those. So of course I let her use it and she just could not stop talking about it for the rest of the shift. It was so cute. She was like, 
you know, I can't hear anything with my normal stethoscope because I have tinnitus. And so she was so excited because she could actually hear what heart sounds were supposed to sound like. She said, I'm going to ask for one of these for graduation. And I was like, yeah, you definitely should. So just so you know, the echo technology that makes this stethoscope so amazing. Uh, you can enable it with a flip of a switch. You can turn it on and off. It has active noise cancellation up to 40 times amplification, wireless auscultation using Bluetooth technology. It connects with Echo's free app and software so that you can visualize, record, share, live stream, analyze heart sounds, lung sounds, and whatever body sounds you want to listen to. So you can go to echohealth.com and use the promo code GNBN to get 10% off your order. And that's Echo is spelled E-K-O, by the way. So it's echohealth.com and use the GNBN promo code to get 10% off your order. So now we can talk about the Ginner story. I'm excited about this one. <laughs> what I wanted to do is the last uh, episode, I talked about the UAB nurses who basically refused to clock in. I don't know if you guys heard the story or not, but... A few weeks ago, there were some nurses, emergency room nurses in Alabama who at UAB who all got together and said, we're not clocking in when it's time to clock in. And the neat thing about that story that I just loved is that they made sure that patient care was not compromised when they did this. It was, it was a, an opportunity for them to bring awareness. And, but they did it in this an amazing way because they got with the day shift team and they said, hey, we would like to do this. Can you have our backs? And they were like, yes, you go do it. You do that part, well, we got the patients. And so they did it in a safe way that it did bring awareness. They brought the news crews there and they were interviewing them. They were, of course, interviewing the administration who I'm sure was losing their minds. Um, and they eventually did, they clocked in, but it definitely brought awareness to the cause. And now did it bring about a huge change? I don't know. But I know that the stuff that's going on now, this stuff was always going on. The shortages, the way that we're, you know, the lack of pay, the unsafe ratios, all of these things, they existed before the C word. (laughs) Uh, But it is so much worse now. It's so much worse. And so I love the fact that there are, there are nurses all across the country that are doing this. So I talked about UAB, but there's nurses in, in, um, at Mission Hospital in Asheville, North Carolina, that gathered to protest. They were saying that they were making them, the, the staffing was atrocious. They were making them float to departments where they had not been trained. It was just unsafe. They were wanting better compensation. And make no mistake, you deserve to be paid the amount of money that is equivalent to the responsibility that they will place on your shoulders and the education that they require you to have to do that job. Amen? Amen. Thank you. Because so many times nurses just are, for some reason, afraid to ask for more money. They're afraid to stand up for themselves. We have to advocate for ourselves. Well, just like we advocate for our patients, we're so good at taking care of other people. We have to take care of ourselves because guess what? That, a whole, that a holds, you know, that old saying, like, you can't take care of the other person if you don't take care of yourself first. Isn't that true? Yes, absolutely. And the money, it all starts there because people are struggling. They're trying to take care of their families. And they, they find out, oh, I can make more money going and doing this kind of nursing. And they leave the bedside because do you think they would want to leave? They, they love patient care, but there's more money there. It's not like, oh, I'm greedy. It's 
I want to provide for my family. And I know my worth. And I know my worth. Thank you. Yes. So if we go back to that and we pay people what they're worth, then they don't have to leave the bedside. They can stay there. And you have experienced nurses caring for patients. Same thing with CNAs. Same thing with uh, health unit coordinators. All of those people that we supposedly have shortages of, there are shortages of them that are of people that are willing to do these jobs because they're not paying anybody what they're worth in the healthcare, in the healthcare setting. And so all of this kind of stems from that. And we really are going to have to be willing. And you guys, we're really preaching to the choir here because you guys are involved. When you graduate, I, I really encourage you to keep that going. You know, you're involved with the, the Tennessee State uh, Student Nurse Association. Stay, stay involved with the the Tennessee Nurses Association with the ANA and get involved in more things, you know, marching in Washington, going to the Nurses Day on the Hill in Nashville. Uh, we are in Nashville. I'm from Knoxville, so I say in Nashville. You know, get involved in those things at your hospital level, you know, within your hospital, be the change and get, get, you need that collective voice. Gather together. You're at the congressional level, at the state level, at the federal level. Keep, you know, we need the, our, we all need to band together and be a collective voice because we're much more powerful that way. And so I love that that's what these nurses are doing, and I wanted to feature them, but I don't think it's enough. I feel like we've got to push for this. We've got to push for change. We really are going to have to turn the nursing profession upside down. It's, it's, I mean, it's on its back right now, right? We get a, it's like a bug on its back that can't get turned over or a turtle. We got to flip it over. We're, we really are going to have to do something to make the change and we have to figure out how to band together. We have to come together to do this. I think that we can. What do you think? Definitely, especially with floors that have like the shared governance and all that stuff. Like take those opportunities to use your voice instead of like being that nurse that just goes in the break room and rants about, oh, you know, we're not getting paid enough. We're not doing this. Like take those opportunities to email um, what the Congress. Take those opportunities, and that's how we're going to see the change. We have to be the voice and stand together. Otherwise, it's just going to be the same old, same old. Yeah, and it's really important to have a clear message. You know, when you do things like that, you come together with it, you have a clear message of what you want. The thing is that right now, when just like what happened at this hospital in, in Ohio, these things kind of creep up on you, and you just accept one unsafe situation after another, and it, you, you walk into work, you don't plan on doing this. You walk in there and you clock in and you get report and you're told, oh, so-and-so called in. So you started out with three patients on PCU. It's supposed to be three to one, but now you're going to have to have a fourth one. And you look at the assignment and you're like, okay, I could probably handle that, but let's see what the assignment is. And it's just, they're all train wrecks. And you're just like, oh my goodness. How am I going to watch all these patients at the same time? And what do you do? Walk off? It's hard. This is a hard situation. It's one you're going to face over and over and over again. But these are the things that we have to change. And you know there's one state in our union that nurses don't struggle with this. And it's California. And do you know why? Because of state mandate, statewide mandates. They have statewide mandates in California. They, those hospitals have to hold to those ratios. 
And so if you talk to nurses in California, they really don't have these struggles. They don't struggle like we do. It's, they have other struggles, because you're always going to have struggles. Everybody, we love to struggle. We find something to struggle over. But it, they are not struggling with the same things that we are, because they have mandates in place. So these are things we have to fight for, but we gotta, we got to be a, a collective, as you guys are doing right here, and I'm really proud of you guys for doing that, because I know it's, it's it, especially when you're in nursing school. That is hard. I didn't do it when I was in nursing school. I couldn't. It really just depends on what you have going on in your life. Again, it just being involved in like organizations and even if you can find like a small role, you don't have that much time, just find like a small role, just anything to get involved. Or just like emailing your advice to some executive member on your local chapter or so. Just anything to get involved and use your voice. Mm -hmm. At the beginning of this month, the ANA called out the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services to declare the nurse staffing shortage as a national crisis and asked the administration to deploy policy solutions to address the nurse staffing crisis. And if you guys want to get involved with that, you can go to the ANA's website to get information about what to do to support the effort and reach out. Because that's the ANA, the ANA, the TNA, you know, the TNA, the wherever, um, each state, that's a collective voice. It's a place where you can make a difference. And whether or not you agree, you know, with maybe the way they're doing things, but get involved and you can definitely be the change and, and uh, get involved and do things yourself, you know? Even if it's something small, like I want to say over the summer, they were pushing to get basically lost and said to protect nurses from like abuse in the ED or on the floor. And the only thing I did was just sign the petition. I was like, yeah, I did it for my iPhone. I was in my bed, but I was like, you know what? <laughs> they heard my voice, so. Yeah, and that was a huge thing actually that happened because it, the, our, our state recognized that we are, we should not, be, this is ridiculous to say, have to say it, but and have to have a law, but we should not be abused when we're doing our job. And so now our state is, is saying we recognize that and it's going, you're going to get in big trouble if you abuse a nurse. So I'm really thankful for that. Thank you guys so much for being here and being such an attentive audience and your head nods and I love it. I really appreciate you so much. Good luck to all of you who are going to be taking the NCLEX soon. I know you're going to do great. You are awesome. <laughs>